Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. First of all, my brother was packed off to an English boarding school, and thus removed from my life for the greater part of every year. I remember well the rapture of his homecomings for the holidays, but have no recollection of any corresponding anguish at his departures. His new life made no difference to the relations between us. I, meanwhile, was going on with my education at home, French and Latin from my mother and everything else from an excellent governess, Annie Harper. I made rather a bugbear of this mild and modest lady at the time, but all that I can remember assures me that I was unjust. She was a Presbyterian, and a longish lecture which she once interpolated between sums and copies is the first thing I can remember that brought the other world to my mind with any sense of reality. But there were many things that I thought about more. My real life, or what memory reports is my real life, was increasingly one of solitude. I had indeed plenty of people to talk to, my parents, my grandfather Lewis, prematurely old and deaf, who lived with us, the maids, and a somewhat bibulous old gardener. I was, I believe, an intolerable chatterbox. But solitude was nearly always at my command, somewhere in the garden or somewhere in the house. I had now learned both to read and to write. I had a dozen things to do. What drove me to write was the extreme manual clumsiness from which I have always suffered. I attribute it to a physical defect which my brother and I both inherit from our father. We have only one joint in the thumb. The upper joint, that furthest from the nail, is visible, but it is a mere sham. We cannot bend it. But whatever the cause, nature laid on me from birth an utter incapacity to make anything. With pencil and pen, I was handy enough, and I can still tie as good a bow as ever lay on a man's collar. But with a tool or a bat or a gun, a sleeve link or a corkscrew, I have always been unteachable. It was this that forced me to write. I longed to make things. Ships, houses, engines. Many sheets of cardboard and pairs of scissors I spoiled, only to turn from my helpless failure in tears. As a last resort, as a piece aller, I was driven to write stories instead, little dreaming to what a world of happiness I was being admitted. You can do more with a castle and a story than with the best cardboard castle that ever stood on a nursery table. I soon staked out claim to one of the attics and made it my study. Pictures of my own making, or cut from the brightly colored Christmas numbers of magazines, were nailed on the walls. There I kept my pen and ink pot and writing books and paint box. And there, what more felicity can fall to creature than to enjoy delight with liberty? Here my first stories were written and illustrated with enormous satisfaction. They were an attempt to combine my two chief literary pleasures, dressed animals and knights in armor. As a result, I wrote about chivalrous mice and rabbits who rode out in complete mail to kill not giants, but cats. But already the mood of the systematizer was strong in me. The mood which led Trollope so endlessly to elaborate his Barsetshire. The animal land which came into action in the holidays when my brother was at home was a modern animal land. It had to have trains and steamships if it was to be a country shared with him. 
It followed, of course, that the medieval animal land about which I wrote my stories must be the same country at an earlier period. And, of course, the two periods must be properly connected. This led me from romancing to historiography. I set about writing a full history of animal land. Though more than one version of this instructive work is extant, I never succeeded in bringing it down to modern times. Centuries take a deal of filling when all the events have to come out of the historian's head. But there is one touch in the history that I still recall with some pride. The chivalric epic material. From history it was only a step to geography. There was soon a map of animal land, several maps, all tolerably consistent. Then animal land had to be geographically related to my brother's India, and India consequently lifted out of its place in the real world. We made it an island, with its north coast running along the back of the Himalayas. Between it and animal land, my brother rapidly invented the principal steamship routes. Soon there was a whole world, and a map of that world which used every color in my paint box. And those parts of that world which we regarded as our own, animal land and India, were increasingly peopled with consistent characters. Of the books that I read at this time, very few have quite faded from my memory, but not all have retained my love. Conan Doyle's Sir Nigel, which first set my mind upon knights in armor, I have never felt inclined to reread. Still less would I now read Mark Twain's Yankee at the Court of King Arthur, which was then my only source for the Arthurian story blissfully read for the sake of the romantic elements that came through, and with total disregard of the vulgar ridicule directed against them. Much better than either of these was E. Nesbitt's trilogy, Five Children and It, The Phoenix and the Wishing Carpet, and The Amulet. The last did most for me. It first opened my eyes to antiquity, the, quote, dark, backward, and abysm of time. I can still reread it with delight, Gulliver, in an unexpurgated and lavishly illustrated edition, was one of my favorites, and I pored endlessly over an almost complete set of old punches, which stood in my father's study. Teniel gratified my passion for dressed animals with his Russian bear, British lion, Egyptian crocodile, and the rest, while his slovenly and perfunctory treatment of vegetation confirmed my own deficiencies. Then came the Beatrix Potter books, and here at last, beauty. It will be clear that at this time, at the age of six, seven, and eight, I was living almost entirely in my imagination. Or at least that the imaginative experience of those years now seems to be more important than anything else. Thus I pass over a holiday in Normandy, of which, nevertheless, I retain very clear memories, as a thing of no account. If it could be cut out of my past, I should still be almost exactly the man I am. But imagination is a vague word, and I must make some distinctions. It may mean the world of reverie, daydream, wish-fulfilling fantasy. Of that I knew more than enough. I often pictured myself cutting a fine figure. But I must insist that this was a totally different activity from the invention of Animal Land. Animal Land was not, in that sense, a fantasy at all. I was not one of the characters it contained. I was its creator, not a candidate for admission to it. Invention is essentially different from reverie. If some fail to recognize the difference, that is because they have not themselves experienced both. 
Anyone who has will understand me. In my daydreams, I was training myself to be a fool. In mapping and chronicling animal land, I was training myself to be a novelist. Note well, a novelist, not a poet. My invented world was full, for me, of interest, bustle, humor, and character. But there was no poetry, even no romance in it. It was almost astonishingly prosaic. Thus, if we use the word imagination in a third sense, and the highest sense of all, this invented world was not imaginative. But certain other experiences were, and I will try now to record them. The thing has been much better done by Traherne and Wordsworth, but every man must tell his own tale. The first is itself the memory of a memory. As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning, and as if from a depth not of years but of centuries, the memory of that earlier morning at the old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden, giving the full ancient meaning to enormous, comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Not, certainly, for a biscuit tin filled with moss. Nor even, though that came into it, for my own past. And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. The second glimpse came through Squirrel Nutkin. Through it only, though I loved all the Beatrix Potter books, but the rest of them were merely entertaining. It administered the shock. It was a trouble. It troubled me with what I can only describe as the idea of autumn. It sounds fantastic to say that one can be enamored of a season. But that is something like what happened. And, as before, the experience was one of intense desire. And one went back to the book, not to gratify the desire, that was impossible, how can one possess autumn, but to reawake it. And in this experience also there was the same surprise and the same sense of incalculable importance. It was something quite different from ordinary life, and even from ordinary pleasure, something, as they would now say, in another dimension. The third glimpse came through poetry. I had become fond of Longfellow's saga of King Olaf, fond of it in a casual, shallow way for its story and its vigorous rhythms. But then, and quite different from such pleasures, and like a voice from far more distant regions, there came a moment when I idly turned the pages of the book and found the unrhymed translation of Tegner's Droppa and read, I heard a voice that cried, Balder the Beautiful is dead is dead. I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described, except that it is cold, spacious, severe, pale, and remote. 
and then, as in the other examples, found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. The reader who finds these three episodes of no interest need read this book no further. For in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. For those who are still disposed to proceed, I will only underline the quality common to the three experiences. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic, and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasure in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. I cannot be absolutely sure whether the things I have just been speaking of happened before or after the great loss which befell our family, and to which I must now turn. There came a night when I was ill and crying both with headache and toothache, and distressed because my mother did not come to me. That was because she was ill, too. And what was odd was that there were several doctors in her room and voices and comings and goings all over the house, and doors shutting and opening. It seemed to last for hours. And then my father, in tears, came into my room and began to try to convey to my terrified mind things it had never conceived before. It was, in fact, cancer, and followed the usual course. An operation, they operated in a patient's house in those days, an apparent convalescence, a return of the disease, increasing pain, and death. My father never fully recovered from this loss. Children suffer not, I think, less than their elders, but differently. For us boys, the real bereavement had happened before our mother died. We lost her gradually, as she was gradually withdrawn from our life into the hands of nurses and delirium and morphia. And as our whole existence changed into something alien and menacing, as the house became full of strange smells and midnight noises and sinister whispered conversations, this had two further results, one very evil and one very good. It divided us from our father as well as our mother. They say that a shared sorrow draws people closer together. I can hardly believe that it often has that effect when those who share it are of widely different ages. If I may trust my own experience, the sight of adult misery and adult terror has an effect on children which is merely paralyzing and alienating. Perhaps it was our fault. Perhaps if we had been better children, we might have lightened our father's sufferings at this time. We certainly did not. His nerves had never been of the steadiest, and his emotions had always been uncontrolled. Under the pressure of anxiety, his temper became 
incalculable. He spoke wildly and acted unjustly. Thus, by a peculiar cruelty of fate, during those months the unfortunate man, had he but known it, was really losing his sons as well as his wife. We were coming, my brother and I, to rely more and more exclusively on each other for all that made life bearable, to have confidence only in each other. I expect that we, or at any rate I, were already learning to lie to him. Everything that had made the house a home had failed us, everything except one another. We drew daily closer together. That was the good result. Now, two frightened urchins huddled for warmth in a bleak world. Grief in childhood is complicated with many other miseries. I was taken into the bedroom where my mother lay dead, as they said, to see her. In reality, as I at once knew, to see it. There was nothing that a grown-up would call disfigurement, except for that total disfigurement, which is death itself. Grief was overwhelmed in terror. To this day, I do not know what they mean when they call dead bodies beautiful. The ugliest man alive is an angel of beauty compared with the loveliest of the dead. Against all the subsequent paraphernalia of coffin, flowers, hearse, and funeral, I reacted with horror. I even lectured one of my aunts on the absurdity of mourning clothes in a style which would have seemed to most adults both heartless and precocious. But this was our dear Aunt Annie, my maternal uncle's Canadian wife, a woman almost as sensible and sunny as my mother herself. To my hatred for what I already felt to be all the fuss and flummery of the funeral, I may perhaps trace something in me which I now recognize as a defect, but which I have never fully overcome. A distaste for all that is public, all that belongs to the collective, a boorish inaptitude for formality. My mother's death was the occasion of what some, but not I, might regard as my first religious experience. When her case was pronounced hopeless, I remembered what I had been taught, that prayers offered in faith would be granted. I accordingly set myself to produce by willpower a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful. And, as I thought, I achieved it. When nevertheless she died, I shifted my ground and worked myself into a belief that there was to be a miracle. The interesting thing is that my disappointment produced no results beyond itself. The thing hadn't worked. But I was used to things not working, and I thought no more about it. I think the truth is that the belief into which I had hypnotized myself was itself too irreligious for its failure to cause any religious revolution. I had approached God, or my idea of God, without love, without awe, even without fear. He was, in my mental picture of this miracle, to appear neither as Savior nor as Judge, but merely as a magician. And when he had done with what was required of him, I supposed he would simply, well, go away. It never crossed my mind that the tremendous contact which I solicited should have any consequences beyond restoring the status quo. 
I imagine that a faith of this kind is often generated in children, and that its disappointment is of no religious importance. Just as the things believed in, if they could happen and be only as the child pictures them, would be of no religious importance either. With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>